Welcome to DJ Grandpa's Crypt, the podcast of Kickstarter, the crowdfunding website. Each week I interview real people with honest dreams. Today is Monday, June 24th, 2013. This week in history, in 1498, the Emperor of China invented the world's first bristle toothbrush using the coarse hairs from a hog's back. Now that's special. Do ghosts roam your living room? Are you being troubled by paranormal activities? Are you being haunted by a poltergeist? We will haunt them down. down. I've heard that when people will listen to the show that there seems to be more games than they ever knew existed. And I say the same thing. It's a learning experience for me every week. But now I have Tassilo. He's out of Germany and he has a game called Ghost Control Incorporated. It reminds me a lot of Ghostbusters. And I watched the trailer on Kickstarter and it is hilarious. They're tearing up the house, they're using all sorts of particle weapons. And when that happens in the game, somehow you get a big bill, so you have to be careful. Tassilo, welcome to the show and tell me about your game Ghost Control. Hello, thank you for having us here. Uh, Ghost Control Incorporated is, uh, yeah, as you said, it's it's uh, very much inspired by Ghostbusters, of course. Besides that, it's it's a business simulation. You run your own firm. You start off with very little uh, funding, and you have to get a very, uh, uh, you have to get a decent team. Have to buy a, a techie car, get some equipment, which is very basic in the beginning. Then you put your adverts out and wait for the next call to come to get called into action with the team to clean houses, uh, that's residential houses, that's hospitals, etc. Uh, to clean this off uh, the ghosts that are haunting the city of London recently. I saw Mona Lisa in your video. That was a very nice touch, but I swear she moved. I'm not sure about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, she did, she did. It's been a haunted hotel in Cologne where we've been filming and uh, actually they we're having the Mona Lisa in the floor. We will surprise ourselves, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. Now, is this game, is it rated for everyone, the whole entire family? Yeah, I would say so. There may be some people who could say um, hunting down ghosts is not very, very nice. But uh, besides from that, uh, there's going to be no blood or uh, violence. Uh, very friendly, funny, definitely family friendly from my point of sight. Right, and what stage of development is this game in? Is it done? I'd say about 40-50%. Uh, a lot of stuff is done, the graphics are almost complete. Uh, there's a lot of coding before us, but we are very confident that we'll be finished with the game uh, at about August this year. And this game is just primarily meant to just be a whole lot of fun. You know, like hilarious laughs, you know, you're trying to get these ghosts, and you're trying not to destroy someone's house in the meantime. Now, what would happen if you did destroy someone's house? Because you have these pulsating weapons. Well, it's going to be fun, but it's also a very dense strategic simulation. So if you're a strategy player, you won't be disappointed. There's lots to do and lots to, of, of strategy to fulfill. It's a bit like uh, the original XCOM, for example. You move your players, uh, turn-based, 
Each player has got different abilities. The one can move faster, the other one uh, is a bit slower, cannot move that many pieces on the board. So it is actually a strategy game, but we try to put the fun on top so that it's right. not going to be so, let me say, dull. We don't want to think of dull when it comes to <laughs> games. You gotta tell me there's some action in here. You can destroy the houses. Oh, okay, yeah, okay, now you're talking my language. I like yeah, that. yeah. But you're going to have to pay the bill if you oh. haven't got an, um, an assurance for your team uh, that could cover the costs of uh, the demolition that you inflicted to the house. It is possible, absolutely. You can burn it all down and uh, have the ghosts fleeing and all you did achieve is uh, the destruction of the residential housing, yes. Well, what if I want to become an actual ghost in the game? Is there a backer level for that if I want my image as one of the ghosties? <laughs> That's a good idea. <laughs> I like that. Uh, that's something we could add as uh, another tier. We are actually going to um, add additional tiers as we go by. There's three tiers coming up that we haven't yet um, placed in, but Become a Ghost is very nice, I like that. You know, DJ Grandpa, maybe with my <laughs> turntables and stuff floating around the house, yeah, you know? Yeah, that's great. Playing wild, you know, ghosty type music. I kind of like <laughs> that. Now, how much are you going to charge me for that? Oh, I'll tell you later. It stays above <laughs> the uh, 75 pounds uh, that we take it for the ghost hunter. Alright, 75 pounds, okay. Let well, me see what we can do. Okay, alright, let, let's check into that. Let's check into that. Okay, I've been trying to talk to Silo into putting me into this game, but I don't know how serious he is about it. But if you want to find out, go to kickstarter.com and type in Ghost Incorporated. And if you see a ghost floating around with turntables and blasting music in some sort of hotel, you know that's me. And if you can't find it there, go to djgrandpa.com. We'll always provide links to Ghost Control Incorporated. Tosillo, thanks for coming on the show. Great to be on the show. I'm Mark Aitken and I'm the producer and director of a new documentary called Dead When I Got Here. Uh, this film started back in 2011. Uh, I was reading this book by a London-based writer called Ed Vulliami, which is where I'm based. And this book's all about the war going along the frontier between the US and Mexico. Uh, and in this book, he talks about a mental asylum run by its own patients, which immediately interested me. Mark Aiken, um, following that, mm -hmm. filmmaker of Dead When I Got There, a very cool title, by the way. Welcome to the show. Good to be here. Tell me about the film with the very interesting title. Okay, Dead When I Got Here started with me 2011. I kept reading about Mexico, and, and I, I did wonder how people managed to live there with all that violence and killing going on. Yeah, it's all over the news. And then everybody I spoke to said, don't go to Mexico with a camera. They shoot people with cameras. Don't do it. I'm not one of these uh, people who hunts down danger or anything. And then, But I kept reading about it, and then I came across this uh, mental asylum run by its own patients. I found the email of the guy who founded the place, and he said, just come down. You know, I'll meet you at the airport. You can come here. So this guy called El Pastor Galvan, met me at the airport and 
he said, where are you staying? I said, well, I don't know. Can I stay at the asylum? And he said, no problem. So I was there for two weeks with a camera and there's not much to do there if you're not working. So I just got stuck in and every morning I got up right. at dawn and started shooting, you know. And it was the most exhilarating filming experience, maybe the most exhilarating experience full stop that I've ever had in my life because you're looking at 120 people living in a very makeshift asylum in the desert on the edge of Juarez. And these people are, are very raw. They're very... They're very naked emotionally. So for a filmmaker, they're incredible subjects because they don't have the normal inhibitions that, that other people have, you know. Right, right. But along with that comes quite a lot of responsibility because the whole time you're thinking, well, is this ethically right? How am I going to explain this to anybody? Because this is such a strange place. And that whole thing kept coming back to me. How am I going to explain this? What's the context? And I think that's what's really shaped the direction of the film over the last two years is that I really had to try and establish a context for this place because rather than pity these people, which I think a lot of a lot of liberals would do, in fact, I think we can only admire them and be humbled by them because they've all escaped what is the most violent city in the world out of a war zone and they look after each other and, you know, as, as best they can. It's a pretty messed up place, you know. I mean, it's people die all the time. and We're talking about Bogota, right? No, 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 we're talking about the asylum. I mean, which city? Juarez in Mexico. Juarez, okay, all right. It is the sort of epicenter of the conduit of all the drugs that flow from south to north and all the weapons that flow from north to south. And you throw drugs into that equation, you can imagine it's, it's quite a melting pot for one big mess. So we're talking about war torn lives essentially what they all have in common is they're all recovering from one trauma or another and the other thing they have in common is that if they weren't there they would all be dead because you cannot survive on the streets in such a violent city uh, where people kill with impunity so if you're on the street you don't last very long how did you come up with the name dead when i got there i mean what does that mean that is a quote from the main character in the film because what i discovered after the first shoot was that I realised I needed a guide, really, but the guide had to come from inside. I, I, could, I didn't really want an outsider sort of right. doing a narration, telling the audience how it was in this place. And then I found this guy, um, Josue Rosales, who, I mean, my Spanish isn't great, so part of the reason I was attracted to him because his English was very good, and he, he's, he's, he speaks in this, with this great Chicano accent, and he, it's because he, he lived in L.A. for a number of years, and when he was 14, he... He jumped a train right. from Mexico, ended up in L.A. and ended up in a place called Azusa and hanging out with lots of gangs. And then he ended up getting involved in drugs and murder and all sorts of stuff. And he ended up in San Quentin doing time with Charles Manson. Wow, the big house. And eventually he got deported, ended up on the streets of Juarez again. By then he'd had a 30-year heroin addict, uh, heroin habit, so he was a mess. And he reached a point where he couldn't even walk anymore. He got dumped at the asylum, as most people do. He got stretched in, and he had gangrene in his arm, and his fingers were falling off. And I mean, he, he was really near death. So. Yeah, that's bad. And after 30 years of self-destruction, Josue managed to somehow find a new lease of life, a new will to live. He would say it's down to Jesus. Maybe it is. I don't know. But right. I'd like to give him the credit for it rather than anybody else because he did find a will to live. And 
he also found it in himself to to want to help people. And, you know, for a junkie of 30 years, you know, they don't go around helping people. All they care about is themselves. It's a very selfish habit. So he really did find something in himself that wasn't there before. Now, in your movie, and you've stated that you had to be very careful in the way that you portrayed this whole ordeal or this whole experience that you had. I mean, has he become the sympathetic character in your film? We have become friends. And, uh... I've never heard him once defend any of his actions. But what happened, and this is where the story becomes quite miraculous, because for me it was enough to have open access to a mental asylum like this. But Josue said to me that, I said to him, so is this the end of the line? You know, is is he just going to stay at the asylum, carry on working, and, and that's that? And he said, well... He's not so sure, but one thing he'd like to do is to see his daughter again. And his, I said, well, where does she live? And he said, well, somewhere in California, but I don't know where. And he asked me to look for her. And I said, well, California's a big place, you know. Then this was last April 2012. So I put it a five-minute trailer on YouTube. And then in July, I got an email from his daughter saying, what's my father doing in a mental asylum? I've been told he was dead. And I haven't seen him for 22 years. You know, I still get a shiver when I when I say that because uh, I straight away got on the phone to Josue and I said, you're not going to believe this, but your daughter's found my bit of film and, and, you know, she wants to speak to you. So it took me about six months, but then I got them together and it was quite a complicated arrangement, but we got them to meet in Tijuana because he can't go back to the States. She was too scared of going to Juarez, so we, we oh. found this, this place. She lives in L.A. and we filmed it. So... I'm not a great sort of Christian believer in redemption, and I know it's something that's very much part of our culture that people can redeem themselves no matter what they've done. But I think that this story offers some kind of redemption. It offers some hope that no matter what you've done, you can actually crawl out of the sewer and you can better yourself. It doesn't make you an angel, but I think you can change. And I think this this man is really evidence of that, you know. So you do believe people can change? Yeah. Have you always believed that? Um, well, I, I, Filmmakers I, I, become pretty jaded at times, uh, especially I, a doc. I swing, I swing from one to the other, really. And I, okay. And I, on a personal level as well. But I, I, I think of the thing about people changing. I think if you believe you can't change, I think then it, it becomes problematic if you want to hope for anything. Because I think hope generally involves some kind of change of the status quo, you know. In Spanish, the word espero, espera, is to wait, but it also is to hope. And I love the fact that they have the the same word for the two things, because waiting always involves some kind of change, and, and so does hope. I hope that you do reach minimum funding because, like I said, it was just very compelling and I liked the voicing and, and the pace that you took it at and, and just to see this character that um, that seemed pretty gnarled up as far as what he's been through in life and uh, the reunion or the reuniting with his daughter. So if anybody is interested in a doc like this, and like I said, it's a pretty compelling doc, well, it's not the doc yet, but the the trailer on Kickstarter about Dead When I Got Here. Uh, go to kickstarter.com, type in Dead When I Got Here, or you can look it up by Mark Aiken. And if you can't find it there, we'll have links on djgrandpa.com. Mr. Aiken, thanks for coming on the show and sharing.
Now DJ Grandpa's crib has been in existence for about six months now. In that time, I've witnessed the birth of a new cottage industry, the so-called crowdfunding expert. Every time I turn around, there's a new expert trying to sell this service or that service. I believe that everyone has a piece of the crowdfunding puzzle. So this week, I'm starting a new segment on DJ Grandpa's crib called Meet the Crowd. Each week, I'll feature a new expert who will share some of his or her tips with you, the listener. Our first guest on Meet the Crowd is Eli Regalado of Video Gogo. I noticed Eli on LinkedIn and was impressed with his generosity and sharing both his knowledge and his experience. Welcome, Eli, to the show. Hello, Eli. How are you? I'm fine. How are you? I am well. And you're with Video Gogo? Yep. You're the first person on my brand new segment. Awesome. And I love the information that you gave out on LinkedIn about finding bloggers, you know, quality bloggers to blog your project if you're coming out with one or if you're in the midst and you just don't know what to do, don't know how to reach out, how to build a list. And that's really what it comes down to is crowdfunding in and of itself is a marketing exercise. So it's the same thing with the Kickstarter deal. It's just a platform. And it's a platform that you can upload your message on it, but then you still have to market that message accordingly. And that's really what we focus on and having the ad agency background is driving people, relevant people to it, right. and then creating you know compelling copy and compelling video to actually get people to convert into paying customers, or in this case, paying pledgers. Do you have any free advice? Advice is always free consulting and more hands-on and directing and strategy is, is what we charge for. So what would you like to know as far as free advice? Okay, people want to know about bloggers. I mean, I can explain it, but I believe it would be more important if it came to you. How do they get more traffic to their Kickstarter campaign? Because I get people every week, they push play. They don't know what else to do. So you need six to eight weeks in order to plan a successful Kickstarter campaign or any crowdfunding campaign for that matter. I mean, I'm pretty platform agnostic. I think you can crowdfund on any platform out there. Right. There's nothing that Kickstarter is doing that's a super secret. It all comes down to marketing and driving eyeballs. So six to eight weeks, and you want to start making your lists. And before you even start pitching bloggers, let me roll it back a little bit. You need to figure out what the hell you're going to say. This is where most people get choked up because they start pitching bloggers and major PR outlets, but they don't have the messaging down. Let me give you an example. Do you remember when Clinton was running for office? Yes, several times. So do you know what his one thing was, what, what he led with? That I can't remember. I just remember the smile and the wave right now. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so his one thing was, it's the economy, stupid. Now, you think about a country and all the different components that go into it. Right. You got education, you got military, you got infrastructure, you got water, you got all these services that go into a country, and it's a very complicated organism, right? So, and I hear from all the time from entrepreneurs, they say, oh, well, I'm just, you know, my, my thing's so complicated, I just can't narrow it down. You know, you have to narrow it down because if you don't narrow it down, the press is going to do it for you and it's not going to be the message you want. So what is that one thing that you're trying to say and then have three supporting arguments to back that thing up? So it's the economy, stupid. If we have a good economy, we're going to have more money for schools. If we have a good economy, we're going to be able to have better roads and infrastructure. If we have a good economy, 
we're going to have more money to spend on national defense. Everything ties back to that one message that you're trying to get across. So once you have that defined, then you want to start finding relevant bloggers. And so a cool little hack to do this is go to a Kickstarter campaign that you believe is relevant or that your product or service falls in line with. Right. Take the image, um, copy and paste the image onto your desktop from their page, and then just drag it and drop it over into Google Images. And when you do that, Google Images is actually going to find all of the blogs that have written about that Kickstarter campaign and then show you. So then what I do is I just take all those different blogs and I put them into a spreadsheet. And then I have a virtual assistant or an intern or someone on the campaign go through and find contact information for that blogger. And then they just write it all down. So once you have all that information, then you just start pitching. DJ Grandpa, um, my name is Eli Regalado, and I have a book that teaches people how to raise funds on Kickstarter. I think this would be extremely lucrative for you because I know that you talk about this all the time in your podcast, and I have some secrets that could really introduce you to this. The three things I'd say are most important are blank, blank, and blank. Right? So those three things back up your one thing, right? You're basically giving them all the details up front so they can decide for themselves to get on board. Now, as long as you give yourself enough time and you plan this out and you make your list accordingly and, you, and you're pitching diligently, you know, you should be able to launch a campaign with a lot of press right out of the gate. And so what happens is, you know, it's like a sonic boom. And then, you know, basically what you want to do is, is get to where everyone's talking about this campaign within the first day or two. Right. Boots on the ground. That's yeah. it. I understand what you're saying. And I must agree what he said. I did proofread his video. You know, he talked about dragging it to the desktop and I did it. It didn't work for me at all. It didn't work for me at all. Because I made one crucial mistake. I was using Internet Explorer. Then I pulled up Google Chrome and I went to images on it and I dragged it in there. And guess what? It worked just like he said it did. It pulled up all of these blogs and all of these websites and Huffington Post and all of that. So, dude, well, I've been giving out that advice all week. Everybody's been thinking I'm some sort of um, crowdfunding expert or something. I didn't take the credit, though. I footnoted it from you. Well, thanks. You know, and, and the, there's a ton of hacks out there. And, you know, that's what it's about is just, you know, finding ways to make your life easier. And then, you know, any entrepreneur will tell you, you know, that they take the 20% that they know and they source the other 80 and they pull it all together to make an offering. Another freebie then. Let's see how far I can push it. Yeah, go ahead, man. I got the bloggers one, so now I'm trying for like... I get, okay, two more. So, here, let me pull up my notes. <laughs> I can just dump some stuff on you. Hold on. <laughs> well, she agreed, man. She agreed. You're the first on Meet the Crowd, so you got to pave the way. You got to show that the crowd is here for you. Yeah, no, absolutely. So let's see here. <laughs> Okay, so well, let's 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 talk about so conversions. So, um, with Adams, the the project where we raised one hundred eighty three thousand dollars, it was for a toy company out of Boulder, Colorado. You go into these things with the best of intentions, and we had a full two months to plan, and we had a you know a rock solid plan put in place. And the day that we launched, we were on the homepage of Mashable, Wired, Inc., Fast Company, uh, and a few other very large and influential uh, tech media sites. We ended up 
taking the initial video down, reshooting it, and putting it back up because we were only converting 1% of the traffic that came through. Hmm. So a good campaign will convert between 4 to 5% of the views on the video. Right. So that was telling you that there was something missing. You have to have someone that's going to, on the campaign, it's going to look at those numbers uh, daily and sit there and say, you know, if, if you're like four or five days into this and you're converting 1%, you need to change something. So look at your video, start with your video. And, you know, the video should consist of a few components. Number one, people back people. They don't back projects or products right. or companies. They back people. DJ Grandpa. They back Eli Regalado. They back yeah. Eli Regalado or DJ Grandpa because you're providing a service that's good for humanity, that's good for animals, whatever it is, and you need money to get there. Right, so it's you as an individual. So really focus on that piece. It's it's the individual, and then so get your why really straightened out too. You know why are you doing this? Right. You know, it's just to make money. That's not going to do it. But if you're doing it to you know spur innovation in America's youth, awesome. Whatever the reason is that you're doing it, it doesn't have to all be philanthropic, but it does have to have meaning behind it and okay. associated with it. So that's good to know. Is it as easy as as I make it out to be? Like all these people just coming on there and making all of this money? Or is there just so much behind the scenes that you just don't see? And if you really take this upon yourself to crowdfund, it's an awful lot of work. It is a business. It is very serious. A successful crowdfunding campaign is a full-time job for three months. So you need to commit 40 plus hours a week of your life to this thing in order to make it work. So I have a list of like tools that I can uh, just start listing some stuff off. Or you can just email me and we'll put it on the site. All right, here we go. If you just right. email it to DJ Grandpa at djgrandpa.com, we'll post links. And that way it'll be efficient because you've given me so much. Thanks, dude. Eli Regalado, thank you for being the charter member on Meet the Crowd. Excellent. I appreciate it. My name is Fang von Rathenstein from the most metal band on earth, the Lords of the Trident. Okay, everybody, I'm back. I just wanted to say I'm the world's biggest music fan, bar none. I'd like to welcome to the show the monster of a band. They're called Lords of the Trident. They're on Kickstarter, and they are a heavy metal band. And I'm talking with their lead vocalist, the barbarian vocalist himself, Fang von Rathenstein. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. You know, I love power chords, so I wanted to hear more. <laughs> well, I hope you love sweet picking, too, and I hope you love uh, face melting. That's basically what we deliver. That might be a bit much for me to digest, but I, I'd love to hear more. Well, you know, the uh, the EP isn't even out yet. It's, it's been banned in 30 countries due to riots. You know, people have been rioting. Wow. Uh, so just to let you know, you know, it might be a little bit intense might destroy your hard drive. You might want to get an extra hard drive, just a backup, just to make sure that your computer can actually handle it when it comes well, in. Well, I have many terabytes, but that might not be enough. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see. Yeah. 
and I see your videos, they're full of people bursting into flames, explosions, confetti cannons, you know, semi-automatic weapons. Wow, it's very exciting, man. You know, the first video we did, we actually shot in an active volcano. It was extremely expensive because the equipment kept melting. Right. We lost a few cameramen, but, you know, it was totally worth it. So if you watch our, our video for Chains on Fire, basically what we wanted to go for is we wanted to get fire in every single shot, and I think we did it. You call yourselves the most metal band on earth. I love that. That's great marketing there. Did you think of that yourself? You know, you wouldn't have to even think of it because it's absolutely true. We've gone against just about every other metal band we can think of and we've come out victorious. It's one of those things where, you know, if you come to play with Lords of the Trident, you better bring some armor, you better bring some steel, and you better hope that you have what it takes. Let's say I don't know what time it is, and I'm not a heavy metal fan. Could you, in layman's terms, tell me what heavy metal is all about? You know, for us, it's really about the rush of the fast guitars. It's kind of like taking the sound of a field full of, you know, 10,000 soldiers with maybe 300 of your best men and emerging victorious. It's kind of like distilling that down into maybe a four or five minute song and then putting 12 of those or 10 of those or 8 of those on a record and then listening to it you know over and over and over it's that same feeling some fans have told us that some of their CD players have melted some have burst into flames you know I'm just gonna say right now we are not legally responsible for anything that uh, happens in terms of fire flames or melting and our demonic lawyers have insured us that that is the case so it's a fair warning to everybody all you out need there. is good insurance or have an llc or something then you're only you know on the hook for like up to 500 dollars or something everything over that is covered that's very <laughs> true that's very true <laughs> What's it all about, this new EP? Um, I can't remember the name. What's the name of it? It's called Plan of Attack. Oh, okay. The really cool thing about it up to this point, all of the albums so far have been recorded 13 miles beneath the Earth's crust because that's the only place we can practice or record. If we go any less than 13 miles, we cause earthquakes. You guys are that loud, huh? So the last couple of albums that we did, we recorded down in the Mohorovic discontinuity, which is you know geographical term for that area right. in the Earth's crust that kind of has like an open you know space. So we so we have a we have a recording studio down there. Well, this is pretty special. So for this release and this release only so far, we hooked up with a couple of producers. Now we've never done this before. We've never actually had a producer or anyone other than you know members of the band mix or master or do any sort of production on our albums but this guy his name's doug olson i'm not sure exactly what his you know given barbarian name right, right, is right. but obviously you know, we'll just call him doug 
he is one of the guys that worked on. Do you remember the album uh, Nevermind by Nirvana? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was just talking about Nirvana a week ago. Yep, it smells like Teen Spirit and that kind of stuff. Well, he worked on that one. He worked with the Smashing Pumpkins. He worked with Cheap oh, Trick yeah. and a bunch of other incredible bands. And we also have this other producer, Martin Atkins, who was the drummer for Nine Inch Nails. Oh, okay. He used to drum for uh, Pig Face and Killing Joke and Ministry. So those guys together decided to put on some fireproof suits and come on down into the Mohorovic discontinuity with us. And they actually helped us produce this album and, and record it. And, you know, having someone else kind of jump right. in and help us out with that much experience has really taken this album to a brand new level. I think people that are fans of us, uh, who've heard our old stuff, or maybe people who've just seen the music videos online, will hear this new EP and they're going to say to themselves, like, holy crap, this is miles beyond what this band has ever done in the past. I think he should be called Doug the Slayer. Yeah, yeah I think, you know, we were thinking something like, uh, you know, Doug uh, Bloodletter no, no. or, or something. Doug you know, the Slayer. I, I, like, I like Slayer, yeah. though. You know, Doug, maybe like, uh, you know, Doug Helmsplitter. Oh. Or, or we, we can work with it. we got to give him a, a barbarian name for sure. Absolutely. Okay, well, that's cool, man. That's a lot of good news. And, you know, I'm all into plate tectonics and all that. So I, I, I'm totally, you know, down with the whole lower levels of the Earth's crust and all of that. So. Well, you know, it's good to meet another uh, person who really appreciates the geography of the place. Yeah. Uh, I got to say, sometimes we say Mohorovic discontinuity people and, they, you know, it's just blank stares. You know, it's really great to talk to someone who actually... No, understands and appreciates it now do you guys do love songs because i'm thinking a band like yours may not really be into love songs that much some people have criticized us for this in the past but there is room you know for the maidens in our hearts obviously we've had our, our album reviewed by a bunch of different people and it's funny because this one song that we wrote for the maidens People either love it or they absolutely hate it so it's interesting to kind of see which reviewers are into the love songs which reviewers aren't we've got a song called fighting for love which I, you know i will admit is a little bit more kind of on the ballady side for the album but you know hey man we don't discriminate you got to speak to the ladies as well. well they are like 50 some odd percent of the population you know? and they buy most well, yeah. they buy like 80 percent of the records so i can understand that. and you're a great vocalist man i, I did listen to all well, thank you. You know, I, I've practiced my barbarian uh, shouts for many, many years, so so I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Fang, I want you to keep the explosions going and keep the fire alive, you know, if you know what I'm saying. Absolutely. All right, well, thanks for coming on the show, man, and, and show me the music. Play it louder. It was a pleasure to be on DJ Grandpa's Crib. Okay, DJ Grandpa here, LA, LA, big city of dreams. I'm speaking with Brian Ott, the writer and director of a new USC film thesis project. That's a lot to say, but, and it is called The Night Guardian. It's a superhero story. Everybody who listens to this show knows I'm a sucker for superheroes because I don't have the imagination to think of superheroes on my own. So I am amazed at people who can keep coming up with these, you know, crazy ideas, basically. Brian, welcome to the show. 
Oh, it's good to be here. All right. Now, you're a graduate student filmmaker. Yes. Wow. Part of the new breed. Part of the new style. <laughs> yes, I'd say so. All right. Well, tell me about The Night Guardian. This is my thesis project at USC. And um, The Night Guardian started as a script I had written here at school. And it's gone through different iterations. And what I finally came to was I took a couple different stories from uh, my youth with my uh, grandpa who had passed away and my last time spending time with him. And I came to the story of an old man who trying to reach out to his family and he finds the only way to connect with his family is by telling him the superhero story. So I came to this with just the ideas of what's another way to look at a superhero story? You know, they're always there in comics. We see them. But what if it was coming as a story? And, you know, we always have grandparents or our parents are always telling us these stories. And as kids, we put them into imagination. Sometimes these stories are super exaggerated. And sometimes, uh, you know, they're out of this world. Grandpas but... don't exaggerate. <laughs> no, they don't. No, they don't. But, 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 but um, keep going with the story, though. But, you know, uh, as a kid, I would sit there and listen to all these awesome stories my grandfather would say and would tell me. And I think there's just something so magical about that connection that right. grandparents have with their grandkids. And I had a special, really special connection with my grandpa. And uh, as I was a young kid when he um, was diagnosed with throat cancer and it kind of yeah. debilitated him and he would still always trying to find a way to talk to me or like write me a note or tell me a story with like whatever little energy he could possibly do. And I always wanted to translate that into a movie. And I grew up as someone absolutely adoring and loving superheroes and comic books. And I kind of somehow just clicked like, I'm going to do a grandpa. story of a grandpa telling, telling a grandkid about a superhero story. I believe in the trailer you say this is a superhero from 1973. Yeah, well, it's 1979, but the movie takes place in two worlds, more or less, kind of this present day where the grandpa is telling the story to the grandson. And then we have this parallel uh, superhero worlds, which is 1979 New York. Some things are off because it's come from the kid's imagination. So right. it's how a uh, an eight-year-old would think of 1979 New York City to look like. We're talking about grandparents and we're talking about children. Mm -hmm. But when people think of uh, superhero stuff, it's not boring though, right? It's not boring. I mean, like there's plenty of action. There's plenty of, you know, superhero-ness stuff going on and, you know, clashes with, um, with evil and good against evil, all of that sort of superhero type of stuff. The Night Guardian, as the superhero is named, he's on a quest to stop a supervillain named Carter Black. And uh, Carter Black is out to basically drain and steal all of the city's power and something he's calling the blackout. So we have this theme going on through the movie that the blackout is coming. Hold up, that's real though, right? Didn't New York go through a blackout? It did. Oh man, <laughs> you, you're almost stealing one of my movie ideas, man. I, I, <laughs> no, 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 serious. I want to do that as a movie, man. It, I mean, MTV um, calls it the coolest year in hell. <laughs> well, we're not going to show the blackout as much and we'll talk about it. So it'll just be an aspect and you can you can okay. still do that movie. <laughs> All right. Okay, cool. All right. Go ahead. But um, the Night Guardian is on a quest to stop this. And he doesn't have uh, superpowers. He doesn't fly. He doesn't have heat vision. But he's more of a um, like a Batman type where he has a lot of really cool gadgets. And he, he can fight really well. And he can handle himself uh, in a brawl against others. So oh, that's cool, man. You know, <laughs> given budgets uh, and all that stuff, we're trying <laughs> to make this as... 
Okay. We're trying to stretch it as far as we can. It's not a cartoon, but it has like real people and stuff in it. So yeah, it is live action. And I thought it'd be the best way to utilize our production value and everything would be that he was really just a, um, a vigilante crime fighter. Is he a torn character like so many superheroes seem to be this day and time? Like they're, they're not good, they're not bad, you know, they're kind of in between, wishy-washy. Carter Black seems to have the police and everyone in his back pocket. So uh, the Night Guardian needs to go above and beyond what police can do in order to stop him. We have some twists and turns along the way without revealing too much before you see it that he becomes a very, very conflicted character, but maybe not necessarily on issues of like morality, but maybe on what you have to sacrifice to be a superhero. How has your Kickstarter experience been? Because we're not just talking about a student film, we're talking about a crowdfunding venture. I wish we had more money at this point. It's one of those, it's very, it's nerve wracking in that sense. But, yes. you know, we've had good support. I'm trying to make sure that people outside of my circle are able to view the movie and want to be a part of it. And that hasn't happened as much as I'd like to at this point. Right. You haven't had the whole viral wave yeah, yet. It hasn't hit yet. Right. I got you. Okay, Brian, I'm touched by the grandpa part. I may say I'm partial. I guess I could say that. <laughs> And I wish you the best on your project, The Night Guardian. Anyone who's interested, I already told you the title. Go to kickstarter.com. Type it in. You'll see all these cool graphics with, you know, a superhero-ish person in a cape and, you know, looking kind of dashing. Check out the rewards and see how you like it. If you can't find it there, if you can't read the small print, if you ever get lost, go to djgrandpa.com and we'll provide links. Brian, thanks for coming on the show. DJ Grandpa, thank you so much for having me. Hi, my name is Ben Jelter. I've been an independent comic artist for the last five years. For the last year, I've been working on a comic called Moscow 38. It's a dark story about two women trapped in a terrible situation in New York City. Now, why is such a dark, twisty story? Like, sometimes my friends have asked me why I like all these, like, really awful movies that are just all about horrible things happening to people, like uh, Precious and, like, 127 Hours. I think part of it is that after I leave a movie like that, I usually uh, feel great about life because my life is better than the people in the story. That's logical. I mean, if you really think about it, I think sometimes people are get depressed in real life because they watch all these idealistic movies about, you know, people living perfect lives that are impossible in real life. So, you know, maybe watching depressing stuff all the time makes you happier in general. Hmm. Now, how did you become a graphic artist? I mean, you draw your own stuff, you write your own stuff. So. I actually can't remember starting to draw, but I can remember the first drawing that I was proud of made me really, really happy. I think at, at the time I was probably like six or seven. I was like really into the Ninja Turtles and stuff. Right. I designed some space pirate that I thought was really cool. And I guess I hadn't really got that level of satisfaction and that sense of accomplishment from anything else that I'd done in my life at that age. So right. I guess I just kept wanting to draw more and more. And eventually I went to art school and uh, learned a lot more there and Okay. Yeah, so it's always kind of been something I really like to do. Okay, so I'm thinking that you as a kid, I'm thinking your parents probably introduced you to all this fluff stuff, you know, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Captain America, all these all these quote-unquote positive stories, all these quote-unquote uplifting stories. 
And when did you start to go toward the dark side? <laughs> I would say probably in middle school. Right. I guess one of the things I really wanted from people when I worked on stuff at that age was to get a reaction out of people. Mm, shock value. Okay. Yeah, in middle school, it was kind of shallow. I would just try to draw something really violent in order to shock my teachers or something like that. Right. I was kind of a little bit of a rebel. Kind of like a punk young kid. Yeah. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah, I guess it progressed as I got into <laughs> my teen years and I started to kind of incorporate more of like how I feel into it, you know? Right. As a teenager, I was more likely to draw when I was feeling depressed than if I was feeling good. If I was feeling good, I'd usually go out and run around with my friends, go skateboarding or do something like that. But right. if uh, like I was feeling bad, then I would tend to uh, draw more. And right. I would have kind of big mood swings as a teenager. So right. I'd put a lot of emotion into my stuff. So we're headed towards Moscow 38. Okay, now we lead to the future. You got this book. You're on Kickstarter. You're taking care of business. I'm reached minimum funding, so congratulations. Thanks. Yeah, I was really excited about that. Ben Jelter of Moscow 38, the creator on Kickstarter. You guys should check him out, but I want to say thanks for coming on the show. Thanks very much for having me. DJ Grandpa here. I haven't said that in a while, and I really do like saying it, even though I know I say it too much at times. So I've held back for a while, but now I'm back. It's a great name. I would be shouting it all over. See, and if you didn't know, it's Jason in the background. He's from the Kickstarter project, Kickstarted film called Kickstarted. Yes, it's a lot of words yeah. to say, but they all have chaos in them. And he and his team of filmmakers have exposed fraud on Kickstarter. So I had to go to the source and let you know the person who actually exposed the story. And it's Jason and his crack team of investigative filmmakers. Well, I had to add that part because I had crack team. So, Jason, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. Can I just clarify? As much as we helped expose it, we maybe tied the knot of a lot of loose strings that were already exposed by the community, which I think is sort of the beautiful thing about this. Everyone, and this is in, and hopefully you're on my side on this. I think what happens sort of maligns crowdfunding and Kickstarter. When it's not totally fair, you know, we can talk about what happened as well, but there's no way that Kickstarter or Indiegogo or Rocket Hub or any of the other crowdfunding sites can possibly understand the intent or find every element of fraud that's going to happen. It's up to the crowd to sort of be that filter. And what happened with the Kobe Red Beef Jerky project is that the crowd raised red flags and we jumped in and helped them and, and did a little bit more of a deeper dive and put the information out in front of a large audience so that it was exposed. Can you explain what the Kobe beef fiasco was about, in case anyone doesn't know? These guys launched a campaign called Kobe Red, where they were selling beef turkey made from Kobe beef, which if you're not a big meat eater, is like the creme de la creme of meat cuts, and it's only from Japan, and it's like they actually don't get much of it here. But these guys were selling beef turkey made from the best type of beef, and people got really excited about it. And the Kickstarter really blew up. It was actually featured as like a popular project on the homepage of kickstarter.com for 
a long number of time. weeks. I saw that. Yeah, it was like it was always there, right? And so in the process, so we're making a documentary, and we've been, which is crowdfunding right now, again called Kickstarted, and we need support. So I'm gonna keep showing that, I'm sure. But what we've been doing before we even launched our Kickstarter, and for the last six months, and continuing to do is interview interesting project creators, not only to feature in our film, but to do digital content with. And these guys were local to Southern California, according to their page. And so we reached out to them back in May and said, hey, we'd love to interview you for this film. Let us know what we can do. And they said, cool, let me see. Let me get the team together. We can do it with everybody, and we'll get back to you. I didn't even really look that closely at that time at their page, but I can tell you what, what it says on it because I've, of course, done a thorough look at it now. It was a project that didn't have any names or faces associated with it. It was the name of the company running. It was called Magnus Fun, and it was basically this, like, anonymous group of people that were running a campaign and didn't really, and they had like a very personal story where like the one guy said he grew up on a farm in Japan so he knew all about the Kobe beef and how these, these right. cows are fed beer to stay extra fat and how they're going to do it and bring all the beef to Turkey here. And they claimed to have done a number of taste tests in the U.S., but their only evidence were screenshots of cell phones with like one text message from people that said like, hey, your beef turkey was the most delicious thing I've ever eaten. Right. Okay, but it didn't have any phone numbers. It just had like random names of people like Wendy from Austin as like the name on the phone number, which is just a, a strange way to validate that your project is good. Again, no names and no faces. So we reached out to them and we played email tag for a while about scheduling something. And then we were going to do a video project where we were going to ask a number of current pro- people that have their projects currently up to answer, like, five questions for us via webcam, and we were going to cut into a little web video talking about, like, the stresses of having a campaign up. Right. That would have, you know, been a dual promotion for their projects and for our movie, which is crowdfunding, uh, again, at the moment. And I reached out to them saying, like, hey, you know, if we can't get the schedule, just, like, record something for us. They got back to me a couple of days later and said that they had just held a taste test event in Long Beach, and they had hired a student filmmaker to record it, and they had 30 minutes of footage from the event and they were going to edit it down and send us something to look at. And I said, cool, I'll take a look at it. Like, not literally like five minutes after I had sent them that message, they made an update on their page. Uh, and this was about three or four days before they were set to close their fundraising. And they were, at this point, were at about $100,000. And they posted an update that said, hey, we're going to be in this movie Kickstarted uh, with Zach Braff and other people that we've interviewed that are going to be in the movie. And like they talked about how they were at this event in Long Beach and did a taste test and they had a student filmmaker, but it sounded like the way they had written it, and I think it did it on purpose, like we had been there filming, which was not the case, but they had done this on their own and were going to send it to us. And again, they had misled their audience, and so we felt like we had to clarify. We didn't know that they had posted the update until we got like five messages from concerned backers who were like, "Uh, did you actually meet the Kobe Beef people? And we were like, well, that's weird. Why would, why would, like, you know, we've interviewed lots of people and their backers haven't messaged us to see if they really existed. Right. So that sort of, like, clued us into, like, there's something going on here. Let's take a closer look. At that point, I also emailed the Magnus Fund people back and said to them, hey, we'd love to film with you the last hour of your campaign. We want to be there to capture that moment. Right. And they turned us down and said, hey, we're working for the weekend we're not going to even be around, like, we, we all have day jobs, you know, we can't film with you. Which I was like, if you're raising $100,000, I think you'd be around with the people you're doing it with. Like, you'd take the morning off of work just to do it, right? I don't know. That's what I would do. So I was sort of, like, even more like, hmm, what's happening here? 
We were documenting all of that information. We posted something on Reddit about it. This was like a few hours before the campaign was canceled uh, and a few hours before it was supposed to end anyway. Not to get too in-depth on it, but what, what had happened was some very astute backers noticed inconsistencies about what they were going to be doing and had questions about it, like legitimate questions, like, can you right. bring this much Kobe beef into the United States? Are there limits on how much you can use? And Kobe beef really bad to make beef jerky with. And every time that someone posted something like that, there were four or five of the same people that would jump to the defense of the Magnus name. Right. Magnus never jumped into the conversation with the backers. And it was only the same people, but they weren't answering the questions. They were just belittling the people that were asking them. And really, like, like they were trolls, okay? Right, I got you. And so we took their email address and found out that the site, magnusfund.com, had been registered using the same email as another site called youhadme.com. And they were registered under the name of Stanley Owens, who was the name of one of the people that was trolling anyone that had negative comments about the project. And this person, Stanley Owens, didn't come out and say, hey, I have something to do with this project. But he did, clearly, because they had the same thing. Having worked with a private investigator, the name on the Amazon account associated with this project is Des John Allen. Okay, so we had the private investigator look up both the names Des John Allen and Stanley Owens, and what we were able to find were that these people were were not who they said they were. Right, I got you. In talking to the backers, they had told us they told Kickstarter about their concerns, and so we figured that Kickstarter was already aware, and then. Right as we were posting things to Reddit, Kickstarter, of course, suspended the project. I read an article from crowdsourcing.org, and it said that you gentlemen for your film Kickstarted and exposing the Kobe beef thing should be applauded. It said that you guys should be given a serious look. I mean, maybe some of that goodwill should come your way as far as helping to fund your movie. I think you should take some time now to talk about your movie. I'm sure the Kobe beef story isn't all that you have. I'm sure you have lots of other stories to tell. Well, thank you. I'll share a little bit about it. The movie, our goal is to do two things. One, we want to spread the word about crowdfunding and sort of show its power as a movement, right? This great revolution that gives the power to the community to decide what happens and what doesn't. On the same side, uh, that equation is that it also gives the power of anyone with an idea to theoretically turn it into something and sort of as the backdrop of the movie. Right. And also by releasing all this content, you know, again, we like to have this interview with Zach Braff that we posted that got 200,000 views, cutting together reels that talk about different aspects of the crowdfunding world, constantly meeting with and filming uh, creators, not too different from yourself, but at different points in the process, like before, during, after. Yes, sir. To hear the, the pitfalls and the things to look forward to and the personal side of this story. Um, and so those human stories are what are going to drive the, the narrative of the film. And we'll interject lots of the interviews that we're doing along the way, sort of like interesting aside and guideposts and lots of information about the world, the bigger picture of crowdfunding. But I hope that the movie itself is a movie about people that are putting everything they have on the line to see their dream come true. Jason, it's been a pleasure. And everyone, he and his cohorts, they still have time left on their film, Kickstarted on Kickstarter. Go to kickstarter.com and type in Kickstarter. It's a lot of KSs again, but you get the point. And if you can't find it there, we will provide links as always at djgrandpa.com. And uh, Jason, we really thank you and the crowd 
for exposing. Yeah, let's, let's do this again, man. Hey, man, if you want to come back, just let me know if you have issues. Yeah, I want, I want to put you. I want to put you in the movie too. You're, you're so That's eloquent cool. about it. Cool, you're, you're in the vein, man. It's like I'd be talking to the Walter Cronkite of the crowdfunding world. I'd like to thank all our guests this week. I'd also like to thank our listeners. We couldn't do it without you guys. A special thanks goes to Trevor Williams and to my mentor, The Mumbler, for providing music for DJ Grandpa's crew. Thanks to Theron Kennedy, our director of marketing. Until next week, so say we all. The homepage for DJ Grandpa's crib is djgrandpa.com. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter. DJ Grandpa's Crib, all one word. Please subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, which helps other people discover the show. And don't forget to leave a comment while you're there. Our producer is Von Rupert. The executive producer of this and all Bedrock Communications podcasts is AF Rufus.